Pray with me one more time before we dive into our time in God's word. Father, prepare our hearts now to come before your sacred desk to receive the food of your word. Lord, I pray, Lord, that these words would bring encouragement to us, uh, that it would, it would cut and convict us where needed, but it would also encourage us with hope in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Strong Words, Stronger Church. In my younger, unregenerate days, when I used to play basketball or attempt to, I was playing in a, in a league, and there was a person who was uh, talking a lot of mess. And, and when he went up for a shot, I jumped and took advantage and ran my elbow down his head. He got up and gave me some strong words. On my way to the bench, my coach pulled me aside and gave me strong words. What I'm ashamed of is that happened in this building. It was a church, it was a church youth basketball game. Now, those days are over and Jesus saved me. But when we think of the term strong words, we often think of rebuke. We often think of correction. Strong words are not always negative. They can be uplifting. They can, they can provide a necessary warning that would save people from ruin. And today we see three strong words, in the sense of three strong sayings from Paul to the Corinthians. Paul's aim of using strong words in this context was to strengthen a church weakened by division. So you have a church that's weak and weakened because of sin, and Paul needs to give them strong words to strengthen them. And that's the meaning of strong words, stronger church. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So if you have God's word, I want you to please take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verses 16 and 17. I'll give you a couple seconds to pull that up on your electronic device or to open your Bibles and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses, verses 16 to 17. Now, the first point that we're going to see, point number one on your outlines, is a strong word against division. This is the first strong word. The first strong warning that Paul gives is against division. Division is the context that he's addressing. That's going to be made clear from the end of the chapter. That's also where he started in this chapter, addressing division in the church. Now, here's what Paul writes, starting in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Now, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's a strong word, right? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, the first thing that we need to clarify is that this illustration of God's temple, it's meant to be taken as a plural. It's meant to be taken corporately. This is not used in the same sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Now, this passage is often misinterpreted because people cross-reference to 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And in chapter 6, Paul's referring to your individual bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that would be an individual illustration. But here, the context is a spiritual temple. The context that he's been talking about in last week's passage is using different materials in terms of the quality of your service. You're basically building up a temple, a spiritual temple. The illustration is architectural. 
It is a structure. And so rather than building up, those who seek to divide are tearing down that structure that's built on the foundation of Christ. And that's the context of if anyone tries to destroy God's temple. So God's temple in this context refers to all the spiritual believers of Jesus Christ making a spiritual structure. And so in the Greek, the, the do you not know that you is in the plural. Do you not know that you, plural, come together to form God's temple and the Spirit dwells corporately among you? And if anybody tries to tear down people, if anybody tries to destroy God's people, if anybody tries to cause division in the church, they are actually trying to destroy the spiritual structure. That is the sense that is going on. So grammatically, do you is in the second person plural. The second thing is contextually. So not only grammatically, but contextually, this is corporate because of the metaphor of the building. And where we need to cross-reference is we need to leave 1 Corinthians. And I'm not going to read these to you, but in Ephesians 2, verses 18 to 22. Ephesians 2, verses 18 to 22. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, it describes Jesus Christ as a cornerstone to a spiritual building where the individual believers are the building blocks of that building, right? And so in that same context, in that same context, that is what Paul is drawing from. Along these lines, I want to make it even more clear to you a few things that needs to be explained. When Paul talks about this corporate body and if anyone destroys, this is a conditional statement. This is if anyone seeks to destroy, then God will destroy them. So God does not, Paul is not saying that any of the Corinthians have actually destroyed the church or that they're able to. Okay, so keep in mind, this is, this needs to be clarified because what does it mean that God is going to destroy people, that he's going to destroy these uh, Corinthians. It's a strong warning. It's a strong saying. But there isn't actually any evidence that anyone in the Corinthian church has successfully been able to destroy. So this is a strong warning. And if, if you attempt to, if you try to, if you can successfully divide, God will deal with you. Okay? The reality is you can't actually destroy Jesus' church, though many will try, many will attempt to. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's going to talk about church discipline. He's going to be talking about you need to get rid of the members in the church or the false believers who are destroying and dividing God's body because of sin. And that's why it's a strong warning. And we know that the Corinthians actually respond and say, okay, we will. And that's also the importance of church membership. Church membership says these are the people who are, have... Uh, given over to the covenant of the church. They are covenant members. They are bound by covenant to the church. And the church has to exercise the keys of authority to discipline sinful members, to deal with divisive individuals, to weed out false believers. This is something that's not popular today, but it is necessary for the purity of the church. Otherwise, the judgment is strong that God will destroy when you consider this word, <clears throat> this phrase, if anyone destroys, that word destroys is in the present tense. And you got to get a little nerdy here. This is a present tense that can be connotative. 
And what that means is that it's an attempted action. So once again, it's not saying if anyone could actually succeed, because Jesus said what? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Meaning nobody, no government, no persecution, no social group, no society, no individual, no false teacher, no health and wealth preacher, no divisive uh, woman or man will ever be able to actually destroy the church of Jesus Christ. At least the true church of Jesus Christ. So it is an if. If anyone even attempts, they will not prevail. What does it mean that he will destroy? Now, this is not talking about the doctrine of annihilationism. How many nerds are here this morning? Nerds? There is a theological position called annihilationism. Some people read this verse and say there is no such thing as hell. There is no hell. Hell is just a symbol. Hell came later. These people would say hell was written out because of Dante's Inferno. But actually, Revelation talks about a lake of fire, right? The Bible talks about a place where there will be gnashing of teeth. So we believe in a literal hell. Those who don't believe in a literal hell who, and believe in annihilationism, they look at this verse and they say, look, this is what's going to happen to the unbelievers, that God is just going to destroy them, poof, and they're gone. That's not what it's talking about. This is not the doctrine of annihilationism. This is talking about a strong hyperbolic phrase to say, if you seek to destroy and tear down Jesus' body, the church, one, needs to discipline you and deal with it. But if the church doesn't get to it, you will face eternal judgment. That God will destroy. It's a play on words. If you try to do a demolition to God's spiritual structure, if you try to destroy God's temple, he will destroy you. That's all it's saying. If you try to tear down and divide God's people, God will divide you. He will tear you in half. He will destroy you. Right? So it's, it's a hyperbolic warning. So who are the destroyers? Who are the destroyers? The destroyers, these could be the false teachers who are teaching false doctrine. I do not believe in this context that Paul is talking about outsiders. So yes, there are outside persecutors. There are Roman governors, Roman, the Roman government. There's Caesar. There are people uh, coming from the outside. This is talking about the enemies from within who come in and try to tear down Jesus' temple. And I will show you why this goes back to context of actually division. This could be the false teacher who's teaching false doctrine. And by doing so, the context, the foundation is Jesus Christ. When you try to attack the foundation, you are destroying the structure, right? How do you bring down a building? Destroy the foundation. So last week, we talked about the only foundation that you can build on is Jesus Christ. So anybody who comes in and says Jesus never resurrected from the dead, or that Jesus Christ is not the only way, the truth of the life. Or that you, you need Jesus and you need a lot of good works to be saved. Anybody who tries to threaten the sufficiency, supremacy, the exclusivity of Christ and the gospel would be someone who is trying to destroy the foundation and they're trying to divide up God's people and destroy the structure. False teaching includes people who come into the church with secular theories, false ideas, critical theory, popular culture, political identity culture, philosophical ideas, giving in to the cultural pressures 
in our world. Anybody who tries to bring that into the church, that is someone that God will destroy if they seek to divide God's people. Right? Political ideologies, politics, political platforms, God will destroy people for dividing his church. That's very clear. It's enemies from within. And first and foremost, that would be pastors who try to divide his people. Context, right? Of different pastors and leaders. Pastors who try to divide people and people who attach themselves to certain spiritual leaders and divide the church saying, you ought to follow this preacher. We ought to follow this leader. We ought to follow this leader. And by, by creating factions in the church, they are destroying God's temple. This is why this is a strong word. It's a strong word that uh, we could easily fall, fall guilty of violating at times. This could be the divisive, the divisive individual who remains unrepentant. Let's be clear that I'm not talking about conflict in the church. Conflict is inevitable. Every family has conflict. Every church family is going to have conflict. But conflict needs to be resolved. Conflict needs to be dealt with. This is talking about the person who creates conflict, trying to destroy relationships, but is unrepentant. The person who's overly critical of everyone, but is unrepentant, and they're trying to destroy the church. God will destroy them. Beloved, this is a strong warning. And it's so strong that what's going to come out of this in context with last week's passage is it's going to reveal the true believers from the false believers. The true members of the church who won't destroy their own bodies, their own body, you know, in, in the sense spiritually, that if, the, if the, the, the church is the body of Christ, you're not going to cut off your own arm, you're not going to harm your own organs, you're not going to hurt yourself. In the same way, anybody, it's like a virus, right, in light of the pandemic. It's like a cancer. Is that any true believer, any true church is going to try to get rid of that cancer, is going to deal with that virus. In the same way, 1 Corinthians 5 is going to say that divisive individual, that sinner, that person who gives way to sexual immorality, if you don't get rid of that disease, it's going to destroy the entire body. And that sin needs to be dealt with. The body needs to be purified. And so that is a strong warning. That's point number one. Point number two is a strong word against deception. So the first one, point number one, was a strong word against division. Point number two is a strong word against deception. Now, how this is connected is that the division is often caused by deception. That it wasn't Apollos, it wasn't Cephas, meaning Peter, it wasn't Paul who were dividing the church. It was a false theory of popularity and power and rhetoric and philosophy coming in from the world. It's taking worldly ideas and importing into the church and projecting that onto these spiritual leaders. It was individuals in the church creating this division. And so in context, it was people saying Greco-Roman culture prizes rhetoric and speech. And so we follow Apollos, the chief of preachers. Well, that's actually going to be Charles Spurgeon, as we know, as the chief of preachers. But in that time, it was Apollos. And so it wasn't Apollos himself. But it, were, it was these followers of Apollos. It was followers of Paul saying, well, Paul's the one who planted the church. 
Paul's our leader. He's our theologian. So we're going to follow him. It was people who, was, who were saying, well, we're Jewish Christians and we follow our guy, the Jewish leader, the chief apostle, Peter. Right? It, were, it was the followers. Oftentimes, it's the followers of certain pastors who attach this type of special authority to them. And I will talk about celebrity culture in point number three. The sad thing is that we live in a celebrity culture. The church cannot escape that either. either. And when celebrity pastors fall, the damage is huge. The damage is big. It's devastating. It divides the church. It destroys the church. So this is the deception. Now let me read to you in their context now, verses 18 and 20, where you see this strong word against deception. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. Now notice in verse 18, this theme of self-deception. Let no one deceive himself. Now deception is horrible. When someone deceives you, that is horrible. And that's why we don't like dishonesty. Whether it's coming from a politician, when it's, when it's coming from hypocritical people, or whether it's coming from, from anyone, pastors, spiritual leaders, your friends. We don't like deception. But what's worse than, than other people deceiving you is self-deception. When you go through life or a season of your life thinking that you're right, only to realize that you've deceived yourself, that you've been deceived. <clears throat> now, what's the cause of this deception? Paul goes on to say the self-deception comes from, very clearly, thinking that you're wise, not according to Scripture, but thinking that you're wise according to this age, this worldly age. Now, what's this age? Now, this is not talking about your, your physical age, saying, I think I'm wise in my 20s, but I really realized that I wasn't wise, and when I get to 60s or 70s, I'll be wiser. That's not what it's talking about, though that's, that's probably true. I find that to be true. I thought I was wise. I thought I was really wise when I was 21. <laughs> and I got a lot older, and now I realize how foolish I was last year. <laughs> right? uh, I never would have imagined COVID-19 coming. Uh, so unwise in my planning of budgets and, and church and vision. God often shows us that we're not wise, but that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about physical age. In, in, in the kingdom theology, when you look at biblical theology, there is, after Christ came, there's this age, and then there's the age to come. There's this age, and there's, this, and there's the age to come. This age would be, would be the time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. That's this age. It is what we refer to the, the church age. It is an imperfect age where we are already experiencing the victory of Christ in our hearts, but it's very clear that that victory is not fully realized. When Jesus returns in his second coming and establishes the millennial kingdom, and after that kingdom, going into the new heavens and the new earth, that is the age to come. So there's this age, and the age to come. We are right now in this worldly age. And if we invest our wisdom or if we receive wisdom from everything on this side of heaven, that is taking a cue from society, we will deceive ourselves. 
But now, even though we live in this age, our values, our thinking, our investments can be dictated and determined by heavenly values. By values that are set in the age to come. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about your eschatology ought to shape your ecclesiology. How you view the second coming and the kingdom to come ought to impact how important it is that you make these decisions of how you conduct yourself in the church and the priority of the church. And how you live your life in this world as a Christ follower ought to be dictated by those eternal kingdom perspectives, the, the perspective of the, of the age to come. That's what he's talking about. If you follow whatever the world says, the wisdom of this age, that is, that is where they're getting the celebrity idea that's dividing them here. That is where they get the, the problem of societal standards. In, in Corinth, they are fighting and dividing over who has more honor because of certain spiritual gifts. Who's more honorable? Who has, who has a higher rank? Who should receive more praise from man? Who ought to boast, right? You talk about boasting in the context, boasting in ability. That's what the world says. That's what the world is saying how you regard the leaders as better than everybody else and the servants are the people at the bottom. And Jesus reverses that and says, if you want to be my leader, you need to be a servant, not the political servants, but the, but the real servants. And if you're hypocritical, you're going to be tossed out because your character is what qualifies you, not your ability. That, that, is, that is how Jesus reverses it. He says, the, the first shall be last in his kingdom and the, and the least shall be first. Jesus takes, and Paul takes from the cue of Jesus and says, we're going to reverse this. In fact, crucifixion is so foolish to this world. This is strikingly clear. So my question, applicationally to you, is that do you think you're a wise person? Do you think you're a wise person? And if so, why do you think you're a wise person? I don't think there's anybody in here who will admit that you're a foolish person. And I'm, not, I'm surely not saying that you're a foolish person. But I think many times we make decisions and we're like, I think I made the best decision. I think I know best. I think I'm doing what's best. And that's okay. And my question is, where are you getting that final authority from? If you're getting it from this world, if you're getting it from your newsfeed, if you're getting it from the theories of society, if you're getting it from popular culture, if you're getting it from pressure from society, then you're falling into the trap that will lead to self-deception. But if you're getting that, I, I, don't, I think that this is the wisest because this is what scripture leads me towards, then that's what Paul is pointing his people to. He's saying, where are your standards coming from? Where are your standards coming from? A lot of times, I, I think that I'm wise because of stuff that I read. And I have to be reminded that, that I can be reading Christian literature, I can be reading a lot, of, a lot of information, I can study a lot, but that doesn't, that might make me smart in the eyes of some people, worldly just knowledge, that might be book knowledge, but wisdom is how you apply knowledge. Wisdom is how you live. And God, oft, God often has to remind me that not very wise. 
unless I go back to the scriptures. What did the scriptures say? How did the Spirit convict us in any given moment to apply His word? Consider how we are actually foolish to this world. You think of Christmas. I was listening to a podcast. I won't tell you which one. And uh, this unbeliever was, was speaking positively about the birth of Christ and, and referred to that as, as this nice myth. This nice myth that we kind of need during this time of Jesus Christ being a benevolent person. Mythology. A great story. You go everywhere and people say happy holidays and, and uh, you try to push back and say Merry Christmas and sometimes they give you a look. You actually believe that Christmas was the birth of a Messiah? That's foolish. Why do we celebrate Christmas? It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in one of his sermons who aptly explained that in the context of Christmas, the gospel is offensive and foolish to the unbelieving world. Lloyd-Jones, and I paraphrase a point from one of his sermons, that the Christmas story makes us realize that we are helpless, so helpless that we need a baby to come save us. Have you truly considered the miraculous story of Christmas? A virgin gives birth to a boy who will save mankind from their sins? This message sounds like foolishness. Yet this is the message that all men must come to grips with. That's a paraphrase of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Thus, the point being made is that even in the Christmas season, which we are in, we see that Christmas is the glory of God. The glory of God makes the wisdom of man foolish. It, makes, it is good making foolish the wisdom. It is God, in a sense, making the wisdom of this world foolish. The wisdom of this world would say, it would be foolish to think that a baby could save the world. It would be foolish to say that if God were to come and reveal himself, that he would come as a helpless, poor baby child. It would be foolish to say that this Palestinian Jew who walked the face of this earth, that he is indeed the Son of God. It would be foolish in context with 1 Corinthians 15 to believe that man could resurrect from the dead and that a resurrected man is indeed the eternal Son of God, that our salvation hinges on him. All of that is foolishness to the world. And when you get into what's going on in societal standards, it is foolish to believe in traditional values and Christian values when it comes to identity politics, identity, God-given identity, how we were created, sexuality. It is foolish. The world will not only mock you, the world will go after you. But God will turn the world on its head. Now, you look at verse 18 where we see this. It says, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What do you mean? That if you're sitting in here in your cars or in your seats today, or if you're watching at home, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that you are a fool. Because all of us had to become fools according to the world's wisdom. That we had to become fools in order to become wise. When you receive the foolish message of Christmas, and when you receive the foolish message of Easter, and when you receive the cross of Christ, what you are saying is something very foolish. You're saying that I needed that criminal to hang on that cross to pay for my sins. And what you're saying in that moment is you're confessing that I am so sinful that I cannot save myself, that as, as much philanthropy 
as much altruism that I practice, as much good will and good works that I do, that I couldn't save myself. That if there was a God, and if I came before him, and I said, look at all the good things I've ever done, that God would say, that's not enough, that I needed that criminal. I needed that ugly, bleeding guy. That he was my substitute on the cross. I needed him to take my place. That's how sinful I am. That I needed him to die in my place. That is what you're saying. And then after he died, that he resurrected from the dead, appeared to, to people, scars still on his hand, in a resurrected body form, and now he's ascended into heaven. I can't show you him visibly. You can't see him. This is an ancient book, but I believe that it's true. I mean, once I, I can keep going and going, and people just say, that is foolish. Is that really what you believe? And because of that, and because of this book, you're willing to stand your ground on certain ideas that go against the grain of society? You're, you're willing to invest financially or to give up certain luxuries in life in order to give ourselves into the kingdom? And the world looks at you and says, fool. You're foolish. That's what it means. Let him become a fool then, that we may become truly wise, because Jesus Christ is the wisdom of Christ. Now, there are two cross-references being used here directly. In verses 19 to 20, Paul is citing Job 5.13. Job 5.13 and Psalm 94, verse 11. Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written. Now, when the biblical author says, for it is written, he is referring to Scripture, right? So, what's the first thing written? He who catches the wise in their craftiness. This, this is from Job 5.13. Now, the original context is, a lot of, is very ironic. So, if you actually read the cross-reference, you'll chuckle. I hope you laugh when you read the Bible. It's fun. I mean, I know a lot of us, we, we like to watch video and, and TV or, or you like to read a novel because it's fun. Um, the Bible is fun. You just have to have fun with it, okay? Because you got to know who's saying this. The person who's saying this is saying something really wise, but he's a fool. That, that is hilarious because I often, and here's the convicting moment, I often can say a biblical truth or, or say something that's wise but if I'm not saying it with the right heart, or if I'm not leaning into God with prayer, then God says, Hanley, that is, that, you said what was right, but you were so foolish in how you used that truth, or how you thought it would play out. Now, the person who's saying this is one of Job's friends. And we all know Job had three friends. They may have, they may have been well-meaning, but they were wrong. And God proved that they were foolish. These are the words of, of, of Eliphaz. His assumptions are wrong, but what he says is right. And that's the ironic thing, that, that God makes the person who thinks he's wise even saying the right thing a fool because he doesn't know the sovereign plan of God in Job's life. And so, so he says to Job, he says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Well, that's a true statement, but he's using that in the context of assuming he knows why Job is suffering. 
And God reveals that it's wrong. And so David Garland, David Garland, conservative, New Testament scholar David Garland, explains the irony of Eliphaz's true saying. And he, he, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, Eliphaz is too clever for his own eternal good. He thinks he's being wise. He's actually using a biblical truth, thinking he knows Job's fate. Another conservative, conservative New Testament scholar, Thomas Schreiner, explains that the meaning of this phrase, quote, according to the designs of the Lord, the intelligence of the wicked proves to be their own undoing, end quote. Meaning when the wicked think that they're being wise, when the world thinks that they're being wise, God reveals to them, just like he does to Eliphaz later, that he's wrong. He shows them that when they think they're wise, they're fools. This is so convicting to me. And it should be to you, because how many times do we make our own plans, then hindsight is 2020, then we look and we're like, why did I do that? How many times do, do we wish that we would have prayed or sought spiritual counsel before making a decision? That's what God does to his people, right? And then Psalm 94, verse 11 is the next citation. And it says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That's funny because wisdom is not a bad thing, but it says the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and he sees it as foolish, Psalm 94, 11. The Lord, the Lord knows our thoughts. He knows when, when we are being foolish, even though we assume that we're being wise. And that's because we're being wise according to worldly standards. And this was a direct rebuke, a strong word against the Corinthians, for they were being influenced, like we've been saying, by the popular wisdom of Greco-Roman society. So those are the first two points. This leads to point number three. So point number, point number one was a strong word against division. Point number two was a strong word against deception. Point number three, a strong word against, I couldn't find a D. So this is a strong word against boasting in human leaders. If you can think of one word that starts with a D, let me know. And the next time I preach that, I'm going to give you credit for it. Just couldn't find it. One word that starts with a D. I, I thought about it. I looked everywhere. I blame Dr. John MacArthur for forcing me to preach this way. <laughs> is, is, that, is that he teaches us that model of, of, of you know, having the, the repetitive or uh, alliteration, if you will, is, is sometimes. But point number three, a strong word against boasting in human leaders. Verses 21 to 23. Now, in 21 and 23, Paul hammers home his point with a chain of words. And if you recognize Paul's writing, okay, this is very important. When you, when you read enough of Paul, you'll know when he's going off on a chain, like in Romans 8. And you'll say, okay, this is Paul. This is Paul. And this is a real nerdy thought, but, you know, when you're safer at home, maybe you can do this. Read all of Paul's letters, then read Hebrews. And then you'll say, okay, this is good, but this is not Paul. Okay, just a nerdy assignment for you. Read all of Paul's letters over and over and over again. And then you go to Hebrews, read Hebrews, and you'll say, okay, that's why this is not Paul. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, right? But it's not Paul. And that's one of the ways you know. Now, Paul, he writes in these chains that are so Pauline. They're so Paul-like, 
Now, look at verse 21 to 23. This is what he says in chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. It said, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or, and here's his chain, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Where have you seen this chain before? Romans 8.38. Romans 8.38. This is so Paul-like. This is for I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul giving you a chain. And what he's trying to say is that these are all the things that belong to you all as believers. So let me unpack this for you a little bit, why he gives you a chain here. The Corinthians were boasting in men. As we mentioned, they were boasting in their favorite Christian preacher or leader. And so, in a sense, that's why it says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. Very clear. Let no one boast in your favorite Christian leader, for all things are yours. Why would you say that? That doesn't make sense. So I'm boasting in my favorite preacher, but then all things are mine? And what? Paul is saying, and let me put it into our language, is that the Corinthians were saying, Paul belongs to us. And another group says, well, Apollos, he belongs to us. And another group was saying, Peter, Cephas, belongs to us. And Paul is saying, no, you guys are wrong. Let me turn this on its head. Don't boast in men. All three of them belong to all of you. They are to be regarded as servants of the church. Next chapter. So look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. I'm assigned to preach this week, but maybe I'll just do it now. Just kidding. Just kidding. I got to turn there myself. Look at chapter 4, right? So it says, let, not, let, no, one, let no one boast in men. And then go to chapter 4, verse 1. This is how... You should regard us, spiritual leaders, as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God, etc., etc. And then it goes on to talk about the requirements of being a spiritual leader. So it's very clear his context. Let no one boast in these spiritual leaders, for all things are yours. Everything belongs to the church. That's why membership is so important, is that Believers are members of the body of Christ. And we all belong to Christ. And the spiritual leaders of the church belong to Christ. And they, are, they belong to the body of Christ. And the good shepherd, Christ, the head of the church, gave, Ephesians 4, gave to the church apostles and prophets and, and pastors and leaders and shepherds and teachers. And he gave it to the church. And to each local church, the Good Shepherd deploys spiritual leaders. And all those spiritual leaders are to be held accountable by the members of their church. The members who are committed to their local body and the pastors who are then committed to those members and the deacons who are committed to those members and the officers and servants there are committed to those members and the members committed to each other. That's the body of Christ. And all of that belongs to Christ, and all of that belongs to the church. And 1 Corinthians elevates the church. 
And then he go, and then that's why he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all these things belong to all of you. Plural. And of course, the world, the life, the death, the present, the future, those are self-explanatory. All of that belongs to Christ. And you, plural, are Christ. And Christ is God's. So Paul doesn't stop with Christian leaders. He's saying everything in this world, and this doesn't mean every material good in this world. It means that, that everything that God has planned for his kingdom, all things and where the world is headed, it all belongs to God. And so let me give you the big idea and then an application. The big idea this morning is that Christ strengthens his church by warning the divisive, humbling the wise, and becoming our greatest boast. Let no one boast in men. We all boast in Christ, for all things belong to Christ, and the church belongs to Christ. So once again, Christ strengthens his church by warning the divisive, humbling the wise, and becoming our greatest boast. Now let me go back to celebrity culture for a moment. Celebrity culture has been prevalent from the beginning of time. Why? I think there's a theological reason for this. It's because we were created to worship God. We were created to worship God. But because of sin, the closest thing the unregenerate person gets to seeing God is seeing the fallen image of God in sinful man. And when we see great fallen creatures, our hearts naturally praise. So let me explain this to you, maybe unpack it a little bit more, okay? So we were created with the image of God. God created in Genesis all the animals, all of creation, but the greatest of all his creatures was the human race, Adam and Eve. And what God gave Adam and Eve was he stamped his image. What it means to be an image bearer of God is that God wanted every human being to praise him. He wanted the entire world to be his spiritual temple. The whole earth was supposed to be his temple. Every person was supposed to usher praise to him. How? He told Adam and Eve, I give you a mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And so they were to have, in the covenant of marriage, relations, and they were to generate offspring, and this would continue. And as the entire world was, generate, was regenerating image bearers of God, wherever humans were, it would reflect praise back to God. You get that. Every person was supposed to be a missionary. It was the Great Commission before sin entered spread out across the face of this earth and reproduce image bearers and every human being was supposed to bring praise to God. So when you saw another human being, your natural reaction was supposed to celebrate God, the creator. What happened? When Eve sinned and then when Adam gave in and sinned, sin entered the cosmos Man was fallen, but the image of God was not destroyed. It was just marred. So in every human being, you still have the image of God. Just apart from Christ, 
That image of God is blurred and fallen. And so man was created to worship God, and man was created to look to other humans and be drawn to the worship of God. But because of sin, instead of worshiping God, when we see great educators, great athletes, great beautiful people, people who are great musicians, when we see human greatness, we worship. That's what we're created to do. We worship. And rather than worshiping the creator, we worship the creature. That's what's happening. So it is no surprise that celebrity culture is evidence. And it is no surprise that great pastors get praise. And it is no surprise that celebrity culture has crept into the church. And that is a worldly idea. And Paul tries to remind them. Paul tries to remind them that this is fallen thinking. But spiritual thinking is remembering that God has given to his church across history leaders, servants who are exemplary, extremely gifted. And it is, it is, it is not their fault sometimes that people make them into celebrities. He's telling the people, don't make them into celebrities. He's saying that instead, when you see them, celebrate Christ. Celebrate Christ. And apart from divine manifestations, we look to man to lead us often. And it is a reminder here that we need to look back to Christ. Now, God knows that we look to man and praise man. And that's why when he wanted to redirect our praise, who did he send? A man. Jesus Christ, son of God, son of man. Hypostatic genius. 100% man, 100% God. Jesus Christ came as a man to give us the picture of a perfect human that now you can look to a man who died and resurrected, who is the Son of God, and that perfect man, the new Adam, the true and better Adam, points you back to the Creator. Christ, He alone must be our boast. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we boast in Christ alone. He is our rock. He is our cornerstone. He is the definition of true wisdom and true greatness. Help us, Lord. Help all who serve as leaders in any capacity point each other back to your Son. Point us to you each and every day through the power of your Spirit so that we may live by divine wisdom and not the deceptive wisdom of this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.